the Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. Welcome to the Instructor Podcast and as always I am your splendid host Terry Cook and I'm delighted to be here talking to you today and I'm even more delighted that you have chosen to listen. Now today I am joined by a wonderful psychotherapist called Kath Nibs. Now Kath Nibs has joined us to talk all about safeguarding and it's possibly one of if not the most important episodes I've ever done. It's an absolutely brilliant episode that it had me flummoxed at some points. When you listen through, you'll be used to me being this like nice, calm, composed, professional, you know, amazing podcast host. But if you listen, you can see now and again, I just pause because I'm not quite sure what to say. And it's because I was listening that intently, I forgot that I actually need to follow up with some kind of question. So that was uh, a, a bit of a new one for me, but definitely worth a listen. We dive into a lot of stuff. One thing I will just mention is that we do touch around the areas of abuse, um, physical, mental, emotional, that side of it. We don't do a deep dive into it. There's nothing explicit there, but we do talk around it. So if you are potentially going to struggle listening to that, maybe one to give a miss. But if you think you can handle it, I would. Uh, it's definitely going to be a benefit to listen to this episode. I am, however, before you start, going to ask one favour of you. What I'd like you to do is go and click subscribe. Wherever you're listening, make sure you click subscribe so these podcasts drop into your feed straight away. And while you're over there, leave us a nice little five-star review, whether that's on Apple or Spotify or even heading over to the Facebook page and giving us a review over there. But that's enough for me for now. We may as well dive into the show. Welcome to the Instructor Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Kath Nibs. How are we doing, Kath? I am absolutely fine and dandy this morning, Terry. Thank you for uh, inviting me. No, I've, I've been looking forward to speaking to you. But before we dive in, I want to say that this podcast, I speak to leaders, innovators, experts and game changers. And I'm just wondering which category slash categories you would put yourself in. <laughs> oh, um, could I say all of them? No, uh, that would. I don't know. Um, where would I place myself? That's the best oh, answer. Started, what, a, what, what a fantastic question to begin with. Yeah. I am, um, I'm going to go with that. I don't like game changers because it brings up a, a particular movie that Arnie starred in. Um, but I'm often called somebody who's um, plowing new ground and, and a disruptor because I'm challenging probably what we're going to talk about today, but I'm challenging a lot of people to think differently. Excellent. So, yeah, no, innovator, definitely. I'm expert as well. And leader. Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully some expertise today. Um, yeah, but what we are talking about today is safeguarding. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, that side of it? Yeah. So I currently, currently, and this is the thing, I'm, I'm, I'm like a morphing um, plant constantly on the change. Um, but at the moment, my main... Uh, driving life is to write and educate around online harms which I called cyber trauma in 2011 but currently it involves all of the issues around safeguarding child protection adult protection and what's what's occurring with the on off world and of course many of us are becoming aware now there is no difference between on and offline and Probably what we might cover today is the online that kind of 
is always present in the on-off space and the on that's always in the on-off space and, and vice versa, right? So I am a child and adult trauma psychotherapist. I'm actually a qualified engineer, mechanical, electrical and electronic. Um, first woman to do my trade in the armed forces. So I have been around uh, a very broad um, sector of male-oriented trades, um, particularly in and around uh, the Remi. So it was around people who drove tanks all the way through to people who were at the Blues and Royals, which is the, the Queen's own regiment. I've got a background of about 30 years, which is kind of giving away my age a bit of um, IT technology. And I'm counselling psychology in amongst all of that. That's, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> it, it's sort of, yeah. I, when, when I actually start to explain who I am, I'm like, it's really, it's really difficult to put it into one sentence, but I'm actually somebody who's sitting and working with people in and around technology. That would be the succinct, succinct version. Uh, well, I'm going to start off by asking you quite a broad question, uh, and I'm going to ask it as, um, what is safeguarding and why is safeguarding important? Ah, well, two two points. Um, so I will address them as, as they are. Safeguarding often comes with the glib, cliche sentence, it's everybody's business. And safeguarding is the prevention and mitigation of harm caused to a person by a and other. Pretty much. Now, safeguarding actually means more than just being told what the issues are. And that's that to me. Right now, we have the legislation that's called um, keep it. So we've got varying legislation. So we've got one that appears in the, the education sector, one that appears right the way across the board. And then there's like the main safeguarding principles up at, up at Parliament, which are it's um, safeguarding together. 2018 is the most recent legislation, and that's how we implement and recognise what's happening to a vulnerable person and how we protect them from any harm or further harm occurring. What often happens in those documents, which are usually about 250 pages long, is it tells you what the issue is and how to signpost, and pretty much that's it. And I'm I'm quite cross with these legislative uh um, pieces of policy because actually they don't explain the nuances they don't tell you exactly what to do and that is the bit that actually results in people in, in inverted commas getting it wrong at times and by wrong I mean that's not my business because actually I've not been trained in it yeah it's it's interesting that you talk about the nuances and what not to do and, and how it applies in different sectors because I think back to 2017, 2018, it was Theresa May that stood up in, in Parliament and said, and she actually said, I think the words, how can we keep our learners safe? How can we make our learner drivers safe? And it's because at the time there was there was hundreds of hundreds of reported cases of instructors being, I'm going to use the word, inappropriate with, mm -hmm. with students. Mm -hmm. And I think that those headlines, whilst they're important, and whilst that's clearly a massive part of it, are almost a bit misleading about what safeguarding is, because it's not just about keeping not being inappropriate with that student, it's about noticing what's going on with the student and also looking mm. after ourselves as instructors. Well, yes. And I'm I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say one of the one of the difficulties about this arena, if if you want to call it that this is actually uh, I think a better word is paradigm, is the language is fluffy. So what does inappropriate actually mean? And how do you recognise 
your behaviour with a student? How do you recognise what's happening in terms of language, conversations, behaviours, nonverbal cues? And again, how do you rate them against appropriateness, inappropriateness as an instructor, as well as the student? Because actually, and this is what's often forgotten, it can happen the other way around. Students can be inappropriate with uh, their, their instructors and instructors can be inappropriate with uh, their students and vice versa. And then you have to say, so when does it become safeguarding? And safeguarding is broken down pretty much into how to recognise vulnerabilities and how to recognise um, levels of abuse. And one of the issues we currently have, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, is the way that we recognise stuff at the moment tends to talk about the corporeal world. So that, that means to be in the real world. And pretty much we have four categories of um, the issues that we face, which are physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. And then we have a category of neglect. And pretty much that would be safeguarding across the board about how do you recognise those issues? Well, actually, it's more nuanced than that. Because sometimes something that you you may see or do, and then we've got the online world, kind of starts bringing this into a mishmash of categories. And sometimes it's not quite this, but it is, or it could be that. And that's the difficulty with this training. Um, and, you know, as, as I said, when, when we were talking about doing this podcast, this, this is also something that's often only taught to certain professions. And yet we have the Theresa May approach and we have the legislation, everyone's business. So why is it not being taught to everyone and why is everyone not trained in it? And why does everyone not think in a safeguarding perspective? That might be a good way to phrase it. Yeah, I think as instructors, and I'm reluctant to say all instructors because um, I don't want to speak for everyone, but using myself as an example, I think there's definitely some naivety on my part, or there was some naivety. You know, I can remember one of my first ever lessons that I had, uh, I would say a girl, she must have been in her 30s, but she was struggling to change gears, even when the car was stationary. And she asked me, sort of literally asked me to put my hand on top of hers and move the gear stick so she could feel it. Mm-hmm. Me being me, just did it. Didn't give it a second thought, carried on. And I remember speaking to another instructor about that, and it's like, just be careful with stuff like that because you're then like physically interacting with, mm-hmm. with someone else. And, and I suppose you think about it, there could have been, even if that student is completely okay with it, she might go back and tell her a mum or, a, a, you know, yep. um, a partner, or there could be someone walking past the car that sees it and, and sees mm-hmm. that. And even if, you know, even if it's not anything wrong, it's still your reputation in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, we're back to that kind of fluffy language of would that be inappropriate or not? And when when you start to see safeguarding, you have to think about the context. And context has information in it that others are not privy to. So, you know, that idea of somebody walking past the car, well, they don't know why that particular behaviour is occurring in that moment. And often when it comes to the referrals, and we'll we'll probably get on to, you know, what, what we do and how we do it. When it comes to the referrals, people give information that's without all of the context. And that's where the, the organisations such as Social Care Direct are supposed to take that information and say, OK, this looks like inappropriate and potential safeguarding behaviour. And then there has to be something done about what what the other information is. And that then starts, you know, this idea that 
social care direct and the police, the, the, the two organisations that do investigations, are, are there to find out, and I'm doing it like I'm, I'm trying to change my voice because I'm doing the air quotes, to find out whether you were inappropriate or not. So how would you, and this might be an awkward one because you might need specific examples, but how would you define inappropriate? As, as an instructor that's sat in the car of a student, what can we do to ensure we're being appropriate and not maybe a little bit naive like I was at that time? So I'm going to change that word. Just because language helps us do things differently when we speak differently to it, right? So inappropriate is one of those nebulous words. It's a little bit like the issue I've got at the moment, trying to explain to people what online harm actually is. Because as I say, what does harm actually mean? So if you could change that word to professionalism, that then makes it a little bit more about, is it professional for me to carry out behaviour in this context with this particular approach. So if I give you an example from my what, what I actually do uh, with children in, in uh, psychotherapy. So I do not touch the children that I work with, mainly because children can construe physical touch in a way that it might be offensive to them. What I think is appropriate, they may not think is appropriate. Their parents may not think is appropriate. So that is a conversation I have right at the very beginning. And the training that I have to work therapeutically anyway means that I don't ever have to touch a child. But one of the things I wouldn't do is if a child fell over, I would not pick them up and cuddle them because that would put me professionally in a precarious position. And it's that misconstruction of what's happening in the moment that is the thing that we could say was inappropriate or appropriate. Now, of course, as a parent, it's so difficult to sit with a child who's in tears, who has just bumped their head and I can't touch them. Because I'll tell you, my my maternal instinct is to go and rub it better and to go and get, you know, maybe... um, to go and get something like a, a teddy bear and, a, a you know, I'm just thinking about what, what my children did when they hurt themselves. This is what we call an ouchie. And parents are drawn to, oh, my goodness, that hurts. Let me rub it better. Oh, dear, let me clean it. And I can't do that because professionally that's not within my remit. And, of course, I have to think long term here and I have to think if I had to stand in front of a judge and explain my behaviour, would I be okay professionally saying, yes, I rubbed that child's knee, but nothing was going on, my lord? Or would I say, I went and got the ice pack and I gave them a blanket and then I went and got mum from the reception or I called dad to come back from shopping? That is more professional, the second version. And that's how I, that's how I operate, if you like, as a, a practitioner, because I understand what, what it is that would be deemed inappropriate or unprofessional within my profession and of course I'm working directly by sitting very close with children with adults etc etc and this was part of my training and it wasn't a one-day workshop and unfortunately the world we live in at the moment if you were to get safeguarding training you could do it online buy a few tick boxes and get a certificate at the end of it saying yes I know how to recognize those five issues and You'd get maybe 24 hours sitting with somebody saying, this is what safeguarding is. Now you understand it. Well done. You're a, I don't know, you're a champion of safeguarding. And that's that's not how it works. Safeguarding is a way of being. Safeguarding is a living. Yeah. I like the fact you switched the words out there because 
like you said, that inappropriate or appropriate is it is fluffy. You know, uh-huh. there's a lot of ambiguity there, but when you break it down to professionalism, and if you even take a step back and think, right, if I saw someone acting like that with my kid, how would I feel? All of a sudden, it puts a different spin in it. And but I yeah. do think there's some things you can control and some you can't, in a sense. In that, um, for example, I had a young girl fail a test recently, and she was absolutely heartbroken. And when she got out of the car, mm-hmm. she was not in tears, but you could see they were welling up, and she was going towards me as if there was going to be like a hug as if she wanted mm-hmm. that comfort. And I'm really kind of subtly swiped out of the way and steered her around the car because I'm thinking, I know she wants a hug, but mm-hmm. no one else in this car park knows that she's coming to me. You know, it's that, yeah. that external thing as well. But on the flip side, I had a, a last a few years ago that passed and she'd literally jumped on me. There was nothing I could do about it. She mm-hmm. Arms and legs around me, and I actually collapsed. They put my back out to have a week off work, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> so I think there's some things we can control, and there's some things we can't. But in, let me ask you that question then. Actually, if, if something that happened like that, where someone gave you that hug that you couldn't stop, or I can't think of another example, but something like that, do you think that would be something that you just almost then ignored? Or do you think there'd be a way, would you make notes of it just in case? Well, okay. So this is another, this is another big piece of the pie in terms of the conversation that we're having. So there is a difference between me working with a tiny little person and when I'm working with somebody who is uh, an older adolescent, an emerging adult or a fully grown adult. Okay. And this is the word consent. And consent is a huge part of whether we consider a behaviour professional or not. Um, and, and the last thing I want people to do when they're, they're listening to this, Derry, is to go, oh, my God, I can never touch anybody. I'm going to have to, stay. you know, and everybody starts to become fear based. OK, this isn't about fear based uh, practice. This isn't about fear based professionalism. This is about understanding what I consider inappropriate and professional is going to be very different to you. Even if you're sitting in the same car, less than you know a meter and a half away, and what what we have to consider is in that moment that that girl that you talked about that was coming towards you for a hug, actually that's where words matter. Is it okay if I hug you? Is it okay if I have a cuddle? Can I have a cuddle? Those are requests, and actually that then means that two people can then have. And I'm not using sexual consent here. I'm talking about consent that says. This is appropriate, suitable and contextual in the moment. And this is something that I am requesting. So not demanding, you know, I want a cuddle. Can can I? Is it OK? Would it be would it be suitable? Would it be appropriate? Is it all right? These are the kinds of things that we need to think about saying and understanding that, yes, so we are. Um, and I'm going to start talking like a therapist now, which is something <laughs> that I don't want to do. We are tangible human beings we require and need touch our bodies thrive on it so not inappropriate sexual touch but you know when when it's a crap moment like you've just failed your test we want a cuddle when you've passed your test and you're elated we often want a cuddle and the thing is is it's about understanding that obviously most of the people that you will be working with as as driving instructors are going to have the language capability to ask and request, and you can also ask and request. So that brings consent into the equation for adults. What what we have to be aware of is it's the vulnerable adults that cannot necessarily give 
consent. And this starts bringing us in towards, like I said, this was a big, big area, the Mental Health Act. Does somebody have the capacity to say, this is okay for me right now in the moment, and I'm not going to go home, have a conversation with uh, a relative for them to go, ooh, that was inappropriate. And now I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I should put a complaint in. So one of the things about the practice that I have with children is they're not old enough to consent for a lot of um, things that happen. So the Data Protection Act means that anybody under the age of 13, I've got to be very careful with when da, 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 that's another one of my jobs. So I'll not go, I'll not go full down into this vortex of GDPR and data protection. But consent is something that I have to definitely 100% say that I have acquired in my therapeutic practice with a child. And I do that through drawings. I do that through conversation. And I do that through the ability to make the very complicated, simple and effective for a five-year-old. When I'm talking to an adult, of course, I can use language that's more complex. I can use language that assists both of us in understanding and, like I said, sounding like a therapist, creates what we call a co-created, understood contract. And that's a transactional analysis term. So the contract is, you and I agree that this is okay. This is uh, fascinating for me. You're making my brain go in some interesting directions here. <laughs> because we are saying that about consent, and I definitely want to come back and touch on the mental health side of it. But we're talking about consent. I not thought of this before, but I use well, not so much through the COVID thing, but I use high fives a lot. And I always ask, okay. I always say, are you a fan of the high five? And nine out of 10 people say, yeah. And they're, okay, cool. High mm-hmm. five for that. But you occasionally get the one that will say, actually, no. Yeah. And I think if I'd not asked that, I would have been putting my hand up saying, give me a high five. And then I'm putting that person in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. yeah. Which is fascinating. I've not thought of it that way before. Cause I don't think I was doing it, asking intentionally. I'm just, what I did but I think part of that comes to and this goes back to um, the, the the girls I mentioned that, that wanted a cuddle I don't like being touched as me personally I'm not a big fan of cuddles you know there's exceptions to this rule obviously but I generally you know you keep your distance I'm fine as I am but you know when I look at those two situations that that second uh, the first girl I mentioned she wasn't just forcing herself on me for a cuddle but the second one was now again you could say that's understandable she's super excited we've built up a, a friendship in the car if you like but I think that we have to accept our consent as well in the way we are not just other absolutely. people absolutely yeah it's a two-way process and and often and and this is why when when we were talking off air before we started this is this is my passion is Children often, and and I'm a child trauma therapist, okay, working with adults, I'm always working with the child anyway. And one of the thing about children is, um, and this is one of the things that I write, um, so I'm writing in my second book at the moment, and I've got a huge, huge chapter on consent. And I'm not talking anything other than, is it okay if, and we don't do that with children, we often say, don't you say no to me, go and give your grandma a kiss. You mu- and then we give children really confusing messages about the, the safeguarding issues. You must protect your body and nobody can touch you without your permission. And then they say something along the lines of, let me come in and wash your hair. And the child says, I don't want you to. Let me wash your hair. I'm going to wash your hair. I'm washing your hair. And and it's almost, I know, and, and I'm just going to go to the parents here who are probably going, yeah, but Kath, we have to wash the hair because if we didn't, they could end up with lice. They could end up with dirty hair. We'd never get chance to wash the hair. But actually, how does a child learn 
autonomy, agency and mastery in the world if they don't learn that they can say no. And then as the parents, and this really gripes a lot of the parents when I'm educating them, if children don't learn how to say no, then they don't learn how to say yes. And the thing about yes and no is that is what consent boils down to is yes, this is okay. No, this is not. And every single person has the right and freedom to consent to anything that's happening within their life. It's it's interesting you say that because I can see a parallel with that with another section of our, our not a section of a <coughs> facet of our industry. Because we talk a lot about coaching. It's one of the big topics in our industry. Should we coach or should we instruct? And it's fascinating for me because I'll get someone in the car, a 17-year-old, and you ask them that, what they want to learn. You ask them what they want to do that day. Mm. And they're amazed. It's like, well, I get to choose. People spend their entire life being told what to do. They're yeah. not given. They're not given the option of consent, like you said. They're not given the option to choose. And all of a sudden, we're telling them, actually, no. I'm going to ask if you want the high five. I'm going to ask if you want me to, you know, grab the wheel and help you. I think that's that's fascinating. But and, and you're getting the response, aren't you? What? Yeah. What? Yeah. You mean I can say yeah? What? <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, but what I did want to ask, because obviously we talk, uh, we're talking about uh, children and adults a bit. What? Where would you say that? that line is so whether it's a legal line or whether it's um almost a, a metaphorical line where, where does a child become an adult how do we treat them ah neurobiology right so now 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 you've got me geeking out okay <laughs> so legally adulthood if you like begins at 18 years of age okay that's also funnily enough i'll just give you a random fact because i i'm full of crap like this um you can't have a personality disorder before the age of 18 right so on your 18th birthday you can be diagnosed with personality disorders what a great thing so you can now legally <laughs> drink and you can have a personality disorder okay so the thing about children is we have different phases don't we we've got infancy then we've got toddlerhood then we talk about middle childhood you know and then we start going into adolescence so children are considered children up until the age of 18 so bearing in mind that some of the driving instructors might be working with somebody before their 18th birthday you are working with children whether that person is taller than you um i don't know has um a higher intelligence than you whether they've got more experience whatever it is you're still working legally with a child right and that then would mean anything we talk about safeguarding wise would have to go to children's services the difficulty is, in a lot of the children's services, by the time they start getting to 16, we have this really, again, fluffy area around the word consent and around the words uh, that come in the Mental Health Act. And at 16, children are actually capable of making their own decisions. They can take part in research in academic circles. So between the ages of 16 to 18, which is where the care leavers are, there is this really difficult, nuanced complexity of are they an adult or are they not? Because in some services, they'll be classed as an adult, but in others, they won't be. But legally, they are still a child. Now, if we actually look at, from my, my world, neurobiology and neuroscience, you don't fully complete adolescence, which is about the brain changes from childhood to adulthood. That doesn't occur till around about 25 to 28. Now, I'm well aware, and we're going to go off on a slight tangent for a second, that insurance companies used to penalize males under the age of 25 and that was why uh, you know the the terms boy racers used to exist and things like that because 
the brain isn't fully formed until you're about 25 to 28. So, of course, these adolescents would be making choices under the age of 25 that weren't, and I don't like the word maturity because it's it's it kind of brings about this grown-upness and, and um, you know, we reflect at people, oh, you're not very grown-up, are you? Well, here's the thing. Your choices under the age of about 25 to 28 are generally based on your peers, especially if you are male. And one of the things about maleness under the age of 28 that, say, for example, is impressing your mates is far more important than following the rules of the law. And this is why, and of course, insurance companies used to know this, under the age of 25, they penalise the males. Now, of course, because of equality laws and the fact that we've got gender and there's there's this whole spectrum about how do you classify somebody and put insurance out there for them, that has now had to be removed. However, I am also still aware that there are companies who still give females higher um, higher ratings for their um, insurance, uh, you know, because they're, they're considered more mature, but actually neurobiologically they're not. So going back to answer your question, <laughs> adulthood is 18 legally, but neurobiologically 25 to 28. So everybody you work with around about, 25 and under technically you're still working with somebody who hasn't hasn't got the capacity to think through some of their decisions right so this happens in the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex and those are decisions that we call executive functioning and they are about consequences future planning uh peer relationships peer pressure um being able to inhibit those moments when you want to stick the forks up at somebody and just race them away from the the traffic lights. And those those are the things, you know, so we call that inhibition. Um, Those are the things that we're not very good at until we get probably to about our 30s. And if you've noticed, uh, and I can certainly say this, I drove like a dickhead before the age of 30. Okay, no two ways about it. I had a sporty car, because of the fact that I was in and around the army, I had Calibra at the time, Calibras, I had the, the Nova, I had the sporty cars and I drove like an idiot. But I was also taught to drive in lorries because I partly the job that I did was I had to drive around um, an eight and a half ton LGV, take my workshop everywhere I was going and have a trailer on the back. So, of course, I thought I could drive really well. She says in air quotes. <laughs> um, do you think, oh, is there a difference then between, I'll rephrase, like, so, the youngest person I've worked with is 17, uh-uh. in terms of as an instructor, uh, the oldest was 60. Is there a difference in safeguarding when it comes to children as opposed to safeguarding when it comes to adults? Um, yes and no. So yes, in terms of um, what children can consent to and things that can and can happen to them under the age of 18 where they have no power. So, you know, I mean, children don't get a choice. They have to go to school and they have to sit down in the lessons and they have to. There's a lot of you have to, you must. And children don't get to consent. They don't get a choice because otherwise we might have anarchy in society um, children might not want to learn. They might just want to sit on the computer games all day and yada, yada, yada. But actually, when it comes to the vulnerabilities, no, there's no difference whatsoever. We are all in a position where we are susceptible to any kind of hurt and harm by another person upon ourselves. And that's that's really how we 
ought to think about safeguarding rather than, oh, that person has a learning difficulty, therefore that makes them more susceptible. Well, that's not necessarily true because harm is carried out by a perpetrator upon a victim. That's what safeguarding is, is we're we're looking to hear if somebody is being maltreated, mistreated. You know, these are the kind of words, again, fluffy, because how do you define what mistreatment is, maltreatment is, abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we have these categories. We know that emotional abuse is where one person, the perpetrator, carries out an act upon another person that emotionally harms them. And I'm doing that raised raised hand thing. (laughs) What does that actually mean in practice? How do we measure this? So thank you for listening to today's show. Really appreciate you joining me. And we're just taking a slight pause to tell you about how you can actually support the show. So if you would like to support the show, the best way, the first way is to share it. Tell people about it, share it online, share it on social media, all that kind of stuff. Or even go and leave us a five-star review. You can do that on Apple or you can do it on Spotify. or can even go onto our Facebook page and leave us a little review over there. Alternatively, you can go and find the premium subscription. Now, you can find this at our Patreon channel, which you can find over at www.theinstructorpodcast.com. Now, over there, you could sign up and pay £2 a month, or you could pay one-off and then cancel. And that basically gets you nothing other than a nice, warm, fuzzy feel inside and my eternal gratitude. Alternatively, if you wanted to get extra content, even more, you could subscribe up to the £10 a month package where you get a whole host of bonus content, including shows around the standard checks where we dive into the competencies one at a time with excellent trainers such as Chris Benstead and Lee Jowett and Ray Seagrave. Uh, this also shows on coaching. We did one recently on stress and burnout and a whole host of other shows over there as well. But on top of that, you would also get a £10 discount off Bob Morton's Client Centre learning and that's not all you also get a 16% discount on Gorodi the diary management app so you can see a load of stuff over there and a load of different ways that you can support the show so if you do enjoy listening to the show I very much appreciate if you could do one of those things but for now let's get back into today's episode I think for me the way I tend to view stuff like this is I mean, this is probably the wrong word, but I think as the instructor, I'm the person in power on that that lesson. (laughs) And I think that I let other people take control. So, for example, I can be quite sweary, but on a lesson, I won't swear until the other person has. I kind of make it a little rule because I don't Mm -hmm. know if they're okay with that language. So there's things that I won't do on a driving lesson until the other person is sort of okay, even if I don't ask them, you know, because I don't always, people don't Mm -hmm. want to be asked, do you mind if I swear? So... I think that we can, as instructors, just take a step back and and allow those people to take control. And and the people that do get offended by swearing, the people like me that don't like being touched, people that are uncomfortable ringing or sending messages so the parents might do it, a lot of instructors and a lot of people, you know, will criticise those people. They'll call them snowflakes or whatever. What's what's your take Uh on that? I I can guess what your take is. Ah, ah, and we move into that category of aren't we so bloody judgmental of other people, right? <laughs> and there is, uh, and and again, this is that, yeah. So the snowflake generation, as they are often called, is a um, what's his name, Alan Sugar, Mister. I'm the only person who can do it, right? And sometimes I think he's a bit obnoxious, you know. And his obnoxious 
character has created the fact that we can now use this term and it's not endearing we don't say oh aren't you a snowflake would you like we we use it as a as a form of abuse so there is um there is something about when we are developing as a human being okay it's subjective that means it's uh, well actually it's something called phenomenology right and that always makes me want to go do do <laughs> right but phenomenology is my frame of reference on the world how i see things and how i make meaning right and you don't get and i'm doing the you kind of pointing at generic everybody you don't get to decide what i make meaning out of or how i perceive the world and of course as a therapist this is exactly what i do in the the sessions i sit and i listen to somebody's meaning making of the world and then i meet them where they are to try and understand okay so you see things this way and then this is why you know for example you're arguing with your spouse and this is why you feel that you're going to tell your boss to stick it up his whatever and you're going to do this and you're saying that and perhaps and what i can actually do in a in that setting is sit with people and say have you ever thought this way um have you considered that there might be this way of seeing the world and of course that's that's the privilege i get is to have those conversations and say there is more than one way to uh, perceive the world and make meaning but actually these people that you're working with have a way of seeing the world and the only way you're going to get to know that is by asking them questions or by being with them and having those conversations so like you said with the with the swearing is it okay if I swear or not? You're, so you're sitting with that meaning making of the world. Is it okay if I do this or not? If that young person goes around a bend, clips the curb and goes, shit, you now go, oh, they're like me, they're a sweary person. And then what happens is there's a, um, a non-verbal consensual assumption that now it's okay for you to swear. And actually, there's there's no harm in asking somebody, and I'm saying there's no harm, there's that fluffy subjective word again, there's no harm in saying to somebody, is it okay if I swear? What do you think about swearing? Uh, I've noticed that your mum texts me, would you prefer me to text you or do you want me to text your mum? And again, this is this is that thing about it's okay for us to ask these people, especially young people, because they haven't been, at, you know, you've even said this earlier, they don't get people asking them is it okay if we do this how do we how do you want to do this do you want me to text you email you ring you I can tell you now lots of adolescents do not like phone calls so I I have a um in my practice when I'm working with people I have a particular voicemail that says you know thank you for calling me I'm aware because it can be and, and I'm sure it can be for many of us you know when you've got to make a phone call and you say oh god what am I going to say and you go into that panic so I will let people know that I've received their message and I will get back to them. And I also give them a time frame because there's nothing worse than hearing. I'll get back to you as soon as possible. What does that mean? How long is soon as possible? You know, uh, so I tell people it will be within X amount of hours. And even if, uh, you know, we do this with emails, we put out of office replies on I'm out of the office until. And, and again, that can be a, a uh, conversation that says, I will get back to you. You are important. I will talk to you on this day. <sighs> so having those conversations with your students and you might be working with a 55. And I'm just going to give you an example from when I worked at um, Age UK many years ago in the uh, bereavement department. And I, I once went out to uh, a gentleman who was in his 70s. 
And he had never used the washing machine. He had never cooked for himself because his wife did it. And, you know, contextually and the the generation that he was from, he left home to marry and went straight from mum doing all of the household chores to his wife doing them. And the day that I turned up, you know, let's call him Harry for a minute. So I turned up and, you know, hi, Harry, how are you? I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. And I said, so what have you been doing? And they said, eating peach slices. Right. So you haven't cooked anything. He said, I don't bloody know how to. And I said, right, okay. would you like me to show you or would you like us to go and get a book from the shop? Would you like us? Obviously, YouTube did exist. So would you like us to watch a YouTube video? Would you like me to see if Age UK can bring in a helper? What would you like to do? And and he kind of said, well, I don't know, because I've never done it. And and this was a 70 something year old. So it doesn't mean that just because you're we're talking about children, adults here, that people don't have a way of being in the world that hasn't ever included X, Y, Z. So asking and having a conversation because we can't we can't make assumptions. Um, There is a there is a lovely phrase about assuming makes an arse of you and me. So that idea of the presumptions and assumptions are what get us into a lot of the the pickles in the first place. Um, A few things I want to touch on there. Uh, Firstly, my uncle, uh, I once asked him how many sugars he wanted in his tea, and he said, I don't know, you'll have to ask your auntie. Because he'd never made a cup of tea. My auntie used to make his tea all the time. He had no idea. Uh, yeah. Also, I don't know, maybe the best phrase I've ever heard, a non-verbal consensual assumption. That was brilliant. I love that phrase. Um, and then also, I want to just touch back on about texting uh, and about communication with the students or the parents. I think that's fascinating because I think that's where we see a lot of parents who aren't taking that question approach. For example, mm-hmm. I'll have, I've got some students that they want to communicate with me. You know, they specifically told me they don't mind me replying to their parents, but they don't want me to tell them too much. They, they just want me to communicate with them and they'll filter stuff through to the parents. But the parents will ask me and they'll try and arrange lessons. And I'm and it's a real balancing act there between huh. saying to the parent, go on, sorry. Aha. Uh-huh. GDPR, okay, I am going to have to go into GDPR for a second. Okay, under GDPR, over the age of 13, those people can consent to how their data is processed, right? So processing means that, well, there's two, two things that a person does with data, right? So that's information. They process it or they control it or they do both, right? So a controller is a person who makes decisions about what's going to happen with that information, right? So we might actually cover this in a second in terms of safeguarding. So if you are a sole practitioner, so you are a sole trader and, you know, you've got your little car on the drive and somebody says, uh, hi, Terry, can I book some lessons? I'm 17. Of course you can. That person, whilst legally under the age of 18, is capable of making choices under law about you and them having a communication pathway, right? So if they text you or phone, or email, they're all versions of data. And if that person says, and I don't want you to share this with my mom, under the GDPR, under the Data Protection Act 2018, you now are obligated to follow that request. However, we do have to be careful that, you know, uh, under 18 means that legal responsibility is the parent or, or local parentis, it depends on who's looking, because they could be, it could be a child from a residential, or foster care or kinship care or, or all of the other places. Actually, 
there is this law about you don't have to share or cannot share with anybody else without the consent of the data subject. So that's the person who's contacting you. You are not allowed to share that data without their consent. So this this brings in another version of consent. This is the, the data protection consent. So what I tend to do with all of my clients is I say to them, look, the law says up to the age of 18, your parents are in control in terms of they have legal responsibility for you. However, for us to organize sessions, you can text me and I can text you because you're 15, 17, nearly 18, you know, 17 years and nine months and whatever. Then I have that in inverted commas um, working agreement with that person. So it's a data protection contract. I can text you and I am obligated under law to maintain confidentiality around your data because under the Data Protection Act, you're the one that has consented to me processing and controlling your data. So it does move into that area where sometimes you do have to say to them, okay, what's happening is your parent wants to arrange the meetings and wants to arrange the dates that we're going to have the driving lessons and wants to have conversations about how much you're learning and where you're close to your test, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you want me to contact you about the dates and so on, because some of those young people might you know, might be having a duvet day. They might be having an off day. Do you know what, Terry? I don't want to do my driving lesson today. I don't feel like it. I'm not feeling up to it or I'm tired. I haven't had enough sleep. Um, I've got a lesson coming up at, at school that they've just dumped on me. I've got an exam. It could be anything, you know, and this happens in the workplace. Sorry, one of the kids is poorly. Um, those people have the capacity to text you or contact you, you know, via email or phone. And under the GDPR, your processing and controlling contract is with them. Interesting. Mm. Um, so now I can just say to parents, I'm not answering that because of. Ah. Well, uh, what I tend to do is I, I always empathise with the parents. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I understand you want to know what's happening with his, her, their session. Um, but, you know, one of the things is, is they've, they've asked to, you know, they're a little bit embarrassed. So is it okay if I just continue texting them? But don't worry, when it comes to the tech, you know, because 99% of the time, under 18 years of age, the parents are paying for the test, yeah. <laughs> you know. And there is this thing about understanding and empathising with the parents because you may be working with, at any point, somebody who is classified as vulnerable in, in law, which might mean that they have a learning difficulty, uh, a physical disability, they may have a mental health diagnosis. You know, there's lots of things that can actually make a person classified as vulnerable what i would say is sometimes it's just about having that working relationship with the parents that means that you can also say but you know it is their driving lesson and i'm sure you remember when you were learning to drive and i tend to do that thing where i connect with the parent and say and i'm sure when you were doing your driving lesson you didn't want your parents knowing if you were messing up or if it wasn't going too great so you know would it be okay? And again, you're doing that consenting. Would it be okay if, you know, if I just texted Harry and we arranged the lessons and what we could do is we could let you know how it's going every two months. Yeah. And sometimes that's all parents want to know is, is it going okay? Are they do? Because parents have a huge vested interest in how they look when their children are representing them in the world. I think the other thing is when... If there's a, let's say, a 17-year-old that doesn't want you to contact the parents or any of those situations, 
there'll, there'll be a reason why they don't want you to. And I think that kind of brings me on to my next thing I was going to ask you about, which is how how much notice should we be paying to those students? So, you know, why don't they want you to contact their parents? What are they looking like when they come to their car? Is, you know, can you tell something's wrong? Has someone got bruises? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So that I mean, this is this is going to bring us into the uh, the categories of uh, under under safeguarding together twenty eighteen. So this is how how we recognise the situations that might be classified as safeguarding. Okay. So if a young person says, "Oh God, I don't want you to contact my dad. I don't want you to ring my mum," then there's a reason they're having that conversation with you, okay? And like I said, contextually, you now don't know what that actually means or why that's happening. So this is that that person that walked past the car that you were talking about earlier. So again, it's not your job to be an investigator, but sometimes one of the things about human connection is that hmm, you don't sound like you're really happy with them. Do you want to do you want to tell me about it? Is it is it something I should know about? Is it something you need me to help you with? And what what you're actually doing is that offer of being a space where they can speak to you. Now, I'm well aware that you're not all therapists, that you're not all. But do you know what? The same as people in the uh, professions of maybe hairdressing or I don't know, massage therapy, people are going to talk to you. People are going to tell you a lot. And the moment you sit in that car, you are now in a safe haven. As far as that person is concerned, you are now pretty much a safe space because nobody can hear into a car, obviously, unless you're on the, the windows down and so on. But in that car, one of the things is, is that really comes out a lot in terms of youth work. The moment you are sitting with somebody and not being stared at like a therapist, which is why I don't ever sit directly opposite and stare at my clients because it's um, it's intrusive and aggressive. You might notice that people their shoulders might relax just that little bit more. They might sigh differently. And then as you start driving around, you say, okay, I want you to take the left lane and we're going to go across the roundabout. And suddenly they go, do you know what? Fucking... And then they go into a spiel about the reason. And it might be that moment that it's about the reason. And one of the things about safeguarding is we need to be paying attention and thinking about, well, what does this mean? Does it, Are they having a hard time? Is that something that's um, falling within the remit of the categories of abuse, neglect, emotional, psychological abuse? Is it something that's physical? Now, the easiest kind of physical abuse to spot is when there are bruises on the face because the rest of the body is generally covered with clothing. But you can notice when somebody's sitting uncomfortably, you might notice that they keep leaning their back and they keep twisting their shoulders. And, and of course, I'm now kind of doing the mo- the movements. People who are, are have been physically injured are not comfortable and they move about a lot. So you might start to say, I've noticed that you're shifting about in the seat a lot. Do we need to move the seat back or, or is it something that, you know, are you not feeling so good today? You've, you seem a little bit off today. Are you tired? No, my mum and dad were arguing all night and da 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 da. Okay. And what we're doing is we're listening with our bodies, with our, our ears to the situations that alert us to, okay, this sounds like and feels like a safeguarding issue. And effectively, what we're supposed to do under the law is anything that tingles those spidey senses, we are supposedly 
that is what we have as our evidence to then make a report. Often what people are looking for is the sign that it was definitely a safeguarding issue. And actually it's those, I say, stick with your intuition and your spidey senses because they are usually on point. You spend a lot of time with these people. Yeah. Yeah, we can. you can use, often tell when something's wrong with someone, can't you? And yeah. I think as, as an instructor then, let's say that, you know, the intuition is say your spider sense is tingling and you're thinking something's wrong, but that person doesn't want to tell you. Obviously, yeah. we can't push it. We can't force Absolutely, it. Tell yeah. us what, what would be the best option in that situation? Who would we go to? Same. Well, the same as now you say, I'm really lucky in my profession uh, that I have to. It is mandatory for me in my, my uh, role to have supervision. And that means that for every number, X number of hours that I work with clients, I must have X number of hours supervision. But I also have other therapists I can go to. I have colleagues that I can just run something by. And what I've noticed is in a lot of the other professions, that doesn't exist. So if you have that spidey sense, then, you know, you need somebody to run that by. And it also needs to be a professional. So, again, as a sole trader driving instructor who, who you know, God, I nearly went into Ghostbusters then. Who are you going to call, right? Do you have another colleague whom you can say, do you know this thing happened today and I'm just wondering? Now, because we don't have the facility for those um, spaces and places and, and we don't always have the professionals, that's one of the things that Social Care Direct can do. You can phone up with a query and say, I'm just wondering, is this something worth reporting? Is this something I need to do something about? What What is your... And of course, every call that goes into Social Care Direct, um, and you can find these numbers very easily um, by Googling, and what you're looking for is the safeguarding partnership in your city. Um, so it's usually an 0345 or 0845 number. And often you can just run it past one of the social workers, uh, one of the front desk team to say, this happened today and I'm not sure if there's da 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 da. And every call must be logged. And this is one of the things that hasn't been happening for years and years and years. So if we just take and it's going to get a bit dark and dingy for a moment. If we just take little Alfie, who um, many people saw about this little boy who unfortunately died in some horrific circumstances, many of the conversations that did take place were his grandma phoned up social care and said, I'm not happy with what's happening. You know, his parent is is doing this, his step-parent is doing this, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, those calls were logged. And it is then Social Care Direct's responsibility to deal with that issue. And of course, if there was a major thing that, you know, maybe like one of the clients I I worked with one time said that um, daddy was going to come and stab mom with that evening. I didn't hesitate. I didn't go to Social Care Direct. I found the police because that was a threat to life. That's a much higher level of escalation. So the only times that you need to be let's say, panicking, worrying, are when there is a threat to life and threat to others. So that can be a threat to self and a threat to others. You know, well, when we finish tonight, Terry, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to go off and da-da-da-da-da. And, of course, that person now might be talking about ending their life or they might be talking about, you know, if I just drove this really fast and hit that tree, what do you think would happen? Those are the kind of conversations where we don't hesitate, we do make a call, but those niggles, 
those intuitive spidey senses do require run it past somebody else, run it past an organisation. If you've got a supervisory hierarchy, but if you haven't, run it past Social Care Direct. And this is where I would always say, make the phone call and it's not wasting anybody's time. It could just be that tiny puzzle piece that social care needed. And maybe they've had a call from perhaps somebody like a therapist, somebody like a teacher, somebody like a work colleague, and you happen to say, they've just said, and that social care file now might go, that's what we needed. That's the, that's the evidence we needed. And whilst it's only a niggle, we've now got 25 different people that have sent in niggles. We can now action this because 25 people cannot possibly be wrong altogether. Yeah. And, and this is going back to, and I'm going to give you another term here, something that's called alloparenting. Right. So in hunter-gatherer tribes, the mother often leaves her children with other people within the tribe and they might be older adolescents they might be grandmas they might be that's allo parenting and this is where the phrase it takes a village to raise a child comes from and this is this is how we should be looking at safeguarding you are part of a collective a tribe a gathering whatever word you want to use you are part of a community and you might have that really important piece of information actually helps that person or a member of their family because the other thing to bear in mind you're not just dealing with the person in the car they sit down with a whole contextual family behind them yeah fascinating <laughs> uh, but yeah the, the other thing i want to mention um i think and i'm sure this applies to most industries but the driving instructor profession it's, it's like a americanism of society so not everyone is going to be um nice people so you will get driving instructors that are like this isn't my job why should i have to deal with this yeah and my take on that is always it's about what morally what's right so i always think if my stepson brought one of his friends home and you know she was the bad example he's got bruises or or whatever Mm -hmm. you know or even tells you something well i wouldn't let that child just go home there would be some sort of action taken, whether it's ringing social services or the police or whatever. And I think I'd do the same if someone got in my car as a student, because mm-hmm. I would want someone to do that if something was happening to my stepson. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And I can't get, I genuinely can't get my head around why some people would, ah, like, well, it's not not my job. I'm like, No, it's not, but it's a nice and right thing to do. Yeah. So again, that's that's sometimes... And I think sometimes because I can talk to this, uh, having worked with lots and lots of different people, I do meet those people in, in psychotherapy that go, well, it's not my job, Kath. Why should, why should I have to take responsibility for da 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 And I often ask the question, so why do you do the job? Why, why do you actually want to help somebody learn to drive? Sometimes, and I, I will be very honest here, sometimes when I say to people, you know, why do you do that? Why, why do you do nursing as a career? Why do you do accountancy as a career? Why do you do... Uh, working as a lawyer why do you do working as a well there are times that people answer because it's good money okay so there is always going to be the personality type that want to teach because literally I mean it's quite a nice job actually isn't it sitting and working with somebody in a capacity where they're doing all of the work they're doing all of the driving and you get money in your pocket for just basically (laughs) pointing them over the roundabout and turning yeah you could frame it that way, that it's it's a fairly easy way to make money. 
But actually, the thing is, is you're working with a human being. And when we work with other human beings, human beings bring stories and backgrounds and history and they bring their crap with them. And of course, yes, you will find. And and I don't doubt for a minute that people who are listening to your podcast have it in their hearts that they want to help people. Okay, the people who don't give a shit and are just earning money, probably not going to listen to your podcast (laughs) because they know all the answers. Right. So the people who do listen to your podcast are going to have a vested interest in what we call altruistic behavior. I want to help other people because not only does it help them, I also feel good because I'm helping other people. It's why I do my job. There is nothing there is nothing more privileging than to sit and watch somebody come from a really dark, difficult place with trauma to healing and being, you know, in their own words, sorted out, repaired, fixed, or whatever word they want to use. That's an absolute privilege for me to watch. And it's a privilege for me to be a part of that process. But again, yeah, people will shirk responsibility because it requires courage. Okay, so I'm going to use this word time and time again in my uh, career, but maybe right now. It's courageous activity that requires you to make that call. And it's bloody difficult because you think, am I doing the right? Am I doing the right thing? What often happens is we have this narrative. And I don't know if you were brought up with this, but anybody from the 1960s onwards probably had this fear of social care direct because they were the ones who would swoop in and steal children and separate people and put them in. That's not how it works. There, There is a lot of research that knows and supports we know that family units are very, very important. So it is it is a very, very dire circumstance where we remove children, where we separate families, where we actually say no, no contact. So that that's very, very rare. And again, that would have to be that extreme example that you talked about earlier. And that's often what people think safeguarding is. It's only the extreme stuff. Well, it's not. It's a spectrum. It's a spectrum of tiny little niggles at one end and suspicions and spidey senses and hmm that doesn't sound like I would be happy if that was my child that doesn't sound happy for that person or that doesn't sound okay and if that was my spouse I'd probably be saying something as well so it's empathic resonance so this is the again therapy term but it's empathic resonance with would I be happy to tell that to somebody and for not to do anything with that information people talk for a reason. It's called communication. So if I tell you something, it's because I want you to bloody do something with it. I want you to listen to me and I want you to hear me. And I want you to say, would you like me to do something with that information? And of course, when it comes to safeguarding, one of the things that you you could possibly say, so I might give you all a, a phrase you can use is that sounds like, and it might be, that sounds like it's difficult. That sounds like it's um, hard for you to tell me that. Would you like me to do something with that? Again, the consent. Would you like me to do something? I have a duty of care and I'm bothered by what you've just told me. And I think that, you know, I don't know, say, say that young person says, oh, God, I don't want you to I don't want you to contact my dad, Terry, because, oh, oh that sounds like you, you, you're you not getting on with him at the moment. Oh, that sounds like it's really difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't I don't really. Oh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but, you know, last night, oh, my God, he came in and he was absolutely arsehole and he tripped over and he's kicked the dog and did it. OK, well, straight away, many of us know that's an RSPCA phone call because 
dad's coming in drunk and kicking the dog. Yeah, but the thing is, his mum was so angry with him that she took a pan and whacked him around the head. Okay. Again, very extreme example. Right. So we've now got the dog to take care of. And we've also got the person who came in drunk, but we've also got the mum. And we've also got the child. That's a lot of information that came out of just a very quick conversation, um, obviously made up. And then it's like, well, what what do you want me to do about this? Because I have a duty of care. It sounds like mum and dad are not having a great time. But mum hitting dad with the pan, not okay. Dad kicking the dog, not okay. And I have a duty of care to protect and look after and, you know, whatever words you want to use in terms of making connections. I have a duty of care to make sure you're safe in that house. I have a duty of care to make sure that mum is safe and dad is safe and also the dog and anybody else who comes in and out of the house. That takes so much courage because in the background, your internal narrative will be like, shit, 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 shit. What do I do with this? What do I do with this? Run it past social care. Run it past the person. But also, one of the things I always, always, always say to the, the children is, if I have to make that phone call, I cannot promise what will or won't happen. What I can promise you is I am doing my utmost to protect and care for you under Safeguarding Together 2018. And it's my duty of care to follow the law because it's legislative and it is law. So I'm, I'm saying to the, the, the clients, I'm not dobbing you in. I'm following the law, but it's because I care. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to take on board there, but I think. I've taken uh, quite a bit of your time already, but I'm going to pinch a little bit more. That's okay. Because mm-hmm. I just want to pick your brain a little bit about the online side, because we've covered a lot of the sort of in-car physical side there. Mm-hmm. But regarding the online side, I'm going to, because I think technology is evolving all the time, and this is a new thing, but all, there's always something new popping up. And especially for, you know, I suppose I'm 40 this year, and there's people in the industry that are 20 years older than me. So for, for us folk, it's even harder to keep up with. But I'm going to give two examples now, and then I'm just going to let you pick the bones at them, <laughs> because these are two specific ones that happened to me in that I was um, texting my wife, and I was also texting a student. And, and one of the texts, a student, I put a kiss on the end of the text, because mm-hmm. I put a kiss on the end of the text of my wife. And she replied back, do you mind not putting a kiss on the text going forward? And I just said, no problem, mistake, because I'm texting my wife at the same time. Yep. And it was cool. There was no problem. And that actually goes back to what we are talking about, the consent thing before, which I thought was, you know, okay. she's asked me, like, oh, cool, my mistake. But that obviously could have gone a different way. But the second one, and I found this a little bit more troubling, is that um, I did have a student who, she, well, I still got her, she comes to the car, and for the first 10 minutes, she likes to unload on me. Tells me how a week's been, tell, not, nothing like, Mm-hmm. Bad's gone on, just like gets out of a system, then she can relax and do a do a lesson. And she has this little phrase, she goes, What what goes on in the mini stays in the mini. That's what she was to say. Mm-hmm. Which was all fine until she was that phrase online. She was making a recommendation to me on, about me online and said, Oh, Terry's awesome, is this, this, this. And what goes on in the mini stays in the mini. Mm-hmm. And that has a very different context to which someone noticed straight away and said, I hope he's not married or, or something along that, those lines. And I've immediately gone and show my wife, I'm like, look, this this is this. And, and 
And I yeah. thought, I'm just going to leave that. And uh, I had a word for her on the last actually. I just said, look, can you just be a little bit careful what you sound like? And she will find it again. But some of that could have gone a very different way. So I'm just going to throw those two examples at you and yep. say, speak to me. Okay. So the, fir- the first person, wow, fantastic autonomy. Would you mind not doing that? Thank you very much. Okay. Because what she actually meant was that made me feel really uncomfortable. It's a professional relationship. Please don't do that. Yeah. Brilliant. And your response, absolutely. Sorry. Oh, my God. Oh, in fact, that will have been a, um, a one of those moments where you're like, shit, yeah. oh, my God, wrong person. Yeah, yes. good job you didn't send the message to the <laughs> wife. To the, the Yeah, this happens. They're called mistakes, right, in terms of slight mistake, da-da-da-da-da. Of course, this is where a social media policy really is helpful in all of your contracting. So I ha- I mean, the, the poor clients that get this, they're under, under 12, they get a sheet of paper that says, Kath will do this, Kath won't do that which is pretty much Kath will be here. Kath won't tell anybody what happens in our sessions. Kath also won't talk to you on social media. So there is this thing about whilst I know that your profession is different because I don't need TripAdvisor recommendations, right? Okay, recommendations go by word of mouth. Sometimes those statements can be misconstrued. So there is something about please leave professional recommendations online and the band, the bands even, is between you and I. So that idea of, you know, what, what goes on in the mini stays in the mini. You and your student have the contextual understanding about that, but it wasn't understood online. Mm. And also that is a statement that's often uh, has that uh, surreptitious understanding that that means, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and all that, right? So social media policy will help protect all of you in your profession in terms of we will, you know, I will call you two days before our driving lesson. Da, 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 da. Text message with text messages will only be to rearrange or book appointments. And you may need to put this in cat- categorical black and white writing. Yep. Because A, you are processing and controlling people's data. So you should have a data protection policy. I'm just going to give you that little nugget of gold. You all should have a data protection policy. And you should all have um, a social media policy within a contract that you give to a client because you need their explicit consent in order to process their data, right? So in order to do that, you can then say something that's um, personal to your business in terms of whilst I understand what we say in, in the car is between us in the car, please don't put that on social media because, uh, you know, it's unprofessional for you or maybe you feel uncomfortable you can say whatever you need to say again one of the things about the online space is anybody can say anything about you as a professional and it can be damning damaging it can cause harm it can be uncomfortable and you have a right also to say to somebody please take that down please remove it please edit it and again this is one of those things that people do when they are seriously pissed as well. So, you know, this is that, right, you said something in that car, you failed me at my test, I'm now going to go and write a bad... And we don't really have the... Uh, we're not in a space at the moment where we can say to somebody, actually, that's not okay that they do that. People can leave bad reviews about people and people can say things that are unprofessional about a professional. And, you know, in my profession, we usually get hauled over the coals at um, uh, some sort of complaint system because that's why we have the insurance. It's why you have the insurance. And again, if we follow everything we've talked about today, you could end up practicing 
so defensively and by practicing defensively what i mean is that you never actually go and teach anybody to drive ever again because you're so freaking scared at the end of this oh my god people can say something online and then they might say something in the car and actually humans are humans and one of the things we also get to do is defend our position we also get to say that's not how it happened that is and 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 this is why we have liability insurance it's why we have the insurance that protects us as professionals and again just thinking about professional online behavior not forgetting everything that you put about your business online can be seen by potential students potential customers yeah i mean like you said there's the idea of being very defensive and i think that's how a lot of people tell i shouldn't say people a lot of instructors take this stuff it's like well i can never do this i can never do this i think my biggest takeaway from this conversation i think i'm doing a lot of stuff right anyway but it's just check just check and if you're making a mistake then apologize and move on yeah. I think that when you, when you break it all down, it well, down yeah. When we get to yeah, when we get to the fact that human being number one, I'll tell you what, ninety nine percent of us really appreciate an apology. If something has so in in psychotherapy, we call this a rupture. When there is a rupture, we are looking for a repair. We are looking for somebody to say, I'm very sorry about that. I, I hadn't understood your circumstances. I hadn't understood that that was an offensive word to you. I hadn't, I didn't know, da, 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 right? And, you know, this is happening in the in the world of social media. And one of the things to be aware of, I'll just put this tiny little professional caveat in. So many people forget on their social media profiles, our students, our, for me, clients, people that we know, like to look at what we're doing and if we're ranting about a particular topic they may decide that they don't want to work with us professionally they may decide that actually they do because now they want to have a conversation about said post on social media so just remember we're not just putting stuff onto social media we are creating an avatar that can be challenged by people in the corporeal world at any time and that's one of the things people forget about the online space is it, it can be something that somebody can screenshot and they can wait some time. So let's just pretend for a moment that, um, I don't know, little Joe has decided that, um, you know, they're coming up to the 21st birthday. They're going to book you for their driving test. Uh, or they're going to book you for the, uh, the the whole shaboodle, whatever. They've been told their parents will pay for the test for the 21st birthday. They come along. Um, they're quite aggressive because they're not getting on with their peers at the moment. Maybe there's some stuff going on for them in life. They get in the car. They drive erratically. You say, I don't want to work with you. Thank you very much. You scared the living bejeez out of me. <laughs> I think you need to find another instructor. And they go, oh, right. And the next thing is, is something you wrote on social media now gets thrown at you in terms of a complaint and that you said something in the car that wasn't contextually correct. That sounds an absolutely terrifying place to be as an instructor. But also, do we really think that many people behave like that? Nope. No, they don't. What often happens is somebody who is hurt may lash out at somebody else. And during the process of complaints and, you know, sometimes all people are looking for is somebody to listen to them, somebody to hear them and somebody to apologise. And it's so interesting how many young people, and I'm talking under the age of, uh, let's say, 70, that come into my practice have never had an authentic apology. An apology isn't the word sorry. It's something we do. It's an atonement. And yeah. so many of us don't ever, ever get that. 
And to do that, again, I'm going to come back to that word courageous. It means I messed up and I'm taking responsibility for my part in the process where I caused harm, hurt and offence. Yeah. And I think that's uh, a perfect note to end on uh, Mm. because I've genuinely thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. I'm sure anyone listening would have taken a lot from it. And if they haven't, well... I can't help them, people, I'm afraid. So I just <laughs> want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find more calf goodness uh, and anything you want to promote. Um, right. Well, promotion-wise, um, anybody who wants to understand anything to do with the online world, um, I'm on social media. Um, I also have somebody helping me do social media because I'm so busy doing all the other stuff that I'm doing. So pretty much you can find me on Instagram at nibsy underscore 5.0. I'm on Twitter at nibsy. And I'm on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all of the other places. Or you can go to my website, katherinenibs.co.uk, and that will take you to two places. One is my website, Children and Tech, even though I'm not talking just about children and technology. That's just the name of the first book. Um, Or you can go to my Integrated Health Clinic, which is where you'll see a little bit more about what I do as a psychotherapist and a functional health practitioner and all of the other plates I spin. Um, But pretty much, I would say conversations like this and the safeguarding one, I'm I'm moving into a world where I'm talking about digital safeguarding because it actually means, all right, I'm saying safeguarding because there isn't a digital on-off divide anymore. Um, And I would certainly, if you're interested in all of the different topics that are coming up about NFTs, cryptocurrency, you know, because this is where I'm at at the moment, um, the virtual reality and the metaverse and stuff like that. I have a medium blog, which is nibzy, N-I-B-Z-Y dot medium dot com. And pretty much that's where I pour the big issues, um, which might be conversation. And I might actually do a blog about this, actually, Terry, in terms of, you know, why do we not have safeguarding training in anywhere other than professions that are deemed to be safeguarding based, if that makes sense? Yeah. So. If you don't have a safeguarding training as a driving instructor, then please do go look for a a, a safeguarding course. There's level one, two, and three. Obviously, those level one, two, and three won't cover the bits that I've covered here in depth, and they certainly won't cover the online spaces because that's the bit that's missing at the minute, which is what I'm kind of circling around and doing. Um, And eventually, we might all start to think about we're working with humans, and humans live in – villages they belong in contexts you know the children I work with they don't come context free neither does a parent so you know you're not just working with the one person sitting in the car you're working with all of the baggage they bring you're working with all of the stories they bring and to quickly finish off on that that lady who vents for 10 minutes what a great way to begin a driving lesson yeah yeah all that stress gone which means shouldn't we all have a tiny bit of a ritual where we get into the car and we get rid of the crap? Well, that doesn't happen. Sometimes when we've you know, passed our tests, we're rushing from work and we need to get to something else. We don't do what that, that student of yours is doing. We don't dump and then drive with complete consciousness awareness. And that's one of the issues that exists. And I can tell you that because I spend a lot of time with my son watching the YouTube videos of dodgy drivers and near crashes. <laughs> and yeah, there are there are some idiots on the road in terms of behaviours that they're carrying out. But again, you don't have the context. 
Well, I will put those uh, links in the show notes, and you can also find them on the website, which is www.theinstructorpodcast.com. But uh, really appreciate you coming on today, Cap. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've enjoyed it. It's actually been almost a frustrating podcast because normally when you're talking, I'm sort of thinking of, uh, you know, potentially where I'm going to take the conversation. I'm making notes. I found myself with this just staring at the screen. Even before <laughs> we started recording, I, I kind of warn you, I look all over. I'm not staring at the screen because you've just had me genuinely engrossed, which is why when you finish talking, there's been a couple of times where I've gone, oh, crap. Um, you know, so yeah, genuinely really enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. I, you're welcome. I've, I've, I've enjoyed it in terms of, uh, yeah, I am, I'm shouting from the rooftops about safeguarding and the reason I say this Terry just just before we jump off is because I've been to safeguarding trainings and I've been to spaces where I'm like but isn't that what we all should be doing and I realized you know over a decade ago when I started training no we don't all think like this and of course we don't because some of us are oh I don't have the courage to deal with that or I don't have the inner resources or that's not my business because as a child Maybe I got told off for dobbing in. So I'm too frightened to do that. Well, like I said, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. So big thank you to Kath Nibs. Uh, really enjoyed that episode. I mentioned at the start about me sort of pausing and stumbling a little bit, and you could probably tell there that I did. It's one of those prevent episodes where I can just sit back and let the guest talk and educate me. I've spoken before on the show about one of the privileges of doing this podcast is I get to speak to all these amazing people and that's just continuing even deep into to season three as we are now. It's still continuing. There's just this wealth of experience and knowledge out there and it's an absolute pleasure to speak to all these awesome people. Also want to say thank you for listening, uh, to you guys for listening. I really appreciate that you have joined me, especially if you listened all the way to the end of the show. So big thank you for listening. As I've mentioned previously, very much appreciate if you can share the shows, whether you share the posts I put on Facebook or whether you create your own or just share any WhatsApp groups or anywhere on social media. That's all very much appreciated just to help me grow the show. Also, take a moment to suggest you go and check out the show notes. I am putting links in there for all the social media, the website, the stuff from the guests, and there's some other little bits and bobs in there as well you may find interesting. But for now, I'm going to let you enjoy the rest of your week. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.